for children's. You can take your time. I'll wait. There's a lot more of you than I remember. Come on, come on, come on in close. Come on in close. Got to make room for everybody. Come on, guys. Come on down, guys. All right. It's great to see you. I've missed you. And it's great to be reminded how much Jesus loves children. And that's something that's wonderful. Would you pray with me? How about we do that now? Let's fold our hands and bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love children. Thank you that you tell all of the big grown-ups that they need to be like children uh, before you as well. Help us now to go to Children's Church to learn more about Jesus and to know how much better Jesus is. Help us do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. All right. Okay, go with the crowd. Pray for the teachers. All right. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline. It says a better word on it. And we're going to begin our study of the book of Hebrews. It's a wonderful book. It's in the very uh, sort of last 10% of your Bible. So you can kind of go all the way to the right and back up. It's just a little bit before Revelation. If you get to Thessalonians and Timothy, go back to the right, and you'll find Hebrews. It's a wonderful, wonderful letter. We're going to spend six months going through it and... Uh, I think we have lots and lots uh, to learn here. We're going to start, obviously, at the beginning, Hebrews chapter 1, with the first four verses today. So please listen carefully, follow along in your Bibles, look along in the outline, and let's give our full attention as this is God's Word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We need it as much as the first congregation needed to hear this message. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would press it home and make our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen. If you had to summarize your life in six words, what would they be? 
Several years ago, an online magazine asked that question, and it was inspired by the legendary challenge that was posed to Ernest Hemingway to write a six-word story, and it resulted in Hemingway's classic, For Sale, Baby Shoes Never Worn. Now, the magazine was flooded with so many responses it crashed their website. And the responses were eventually turned into a book. And that kept going, and now there's six books. But the first book was entitled, Not Quite What I Was Planning. It's filled with six-word memoirs by writers, quote, famous and obscure. Now, I've removed all the names, but here are some of the memoirs that range from funny to ironic to inspiring to heartbreaking. The psychic said I'd be richer. I know we've had lots and lots of babies born in the last two years. You'll appreciate this one. Sent home, baby born in bathtub. Savior complex makes for many disappointments. Tombstone won't say had health insurance. Cursed with Cancer, Blessed with Friends. It's written by a nine-year-old boy with cancer. This one was only five words. One long train to darkness. Not a good Christian, but trying. Tiny son dying in my arms. Thought I would have more impact. My father doesn't know I exist. I just hope there's a sequel. My life made my therapist laugh. Still trying to outrun the Baptists. A well-known businessman from the church my wife grew up in said, I saw the Red Sox win. <laughs> and my personal favorite, made weird children will die proud. <laughs> the challenge of the six-word limitation is its demand to focus in on what matters most to briefly capture something of significance. How would you summarize your life, or just last year, or maybe this new year, in just six words? I asked that question on Facebook this week, and I got 17 replies. And almost all of them were spiritual in nature. Two of my favorites were, Jesus loves me, this I know. And another one was, more blessed, than I now know. My answer was all of grace, beginning to end. So I started thinking about this life in six words. I wondered how God would answer that question. What would God write? Well, we have his written word in the scriptures, and I think he's already answered the question. And he answered it right here in our passage for today. God's answer comes to us from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. God has spoken by his Son. 
God has spoken by his Son. Those are awesome words. And we're going to look at them more in depth this morning. But before we do, I want to take a step back and take a look at the background to the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, and you should always bring your Bibles. I know we sometimes put it up on the screen. It's always uh, in your uh, bulletin. But I encourage you to bring your Bibles with them, with you. Um, but turn with me, Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. And keep your Bibles open, because we're going to look at some uh, other passages to illustrate one particular point. We're beginning this new series, which I've called Jesus is Better, Make My Heart Believe. We have that wonderful new hymn uh, to go with it. And for reasons I hope you'll understand by the time we're finished. That's an important word, better, in the book of Hebrews. It's found in a number of places in the New Testament, all with reference to the same theme, but none more frequently than in this letter, this sermon, this book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a message about persevering in faith, and it reminds us of the very various challenges to the Christian faith. It points us to the sure foundation for living the Christian life, and that is understanding the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Over and over, the author of the book of Hebrews points us to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And we need to hear this message today just as much as that first congregation needed to hear that message. They were struggling with hanging on to outdated and outmoded Old Testament forms, and they longed to go back to what they knew, what was familiar. And the author of Hebrews is saying to them, no, Jesus is better. Well, we too have similar struggles in our day. We often struggle with letting go of past ways of thinking that we had before we were Christians. We often give in to popular ideas and the latest fads that are flying around. Often we set our desires on the things of this world instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds according to God's word. And these things stunt our spiritual growth. They rob us of much of the joy and satisfaction and security of the Christian life. And so Hebrews is written to all of us as well. Now, it was originally written to Christians from a Jewish background, hence the name of the book, Hebrews. And you have to imagine with me for a moment their context. They know the Old Testament. That's all they've had for a long time. They have a Jewish heritage. They were taught the Old Testament by the rabbis. And they've come to Christ, but they're starting to waver in their commitment to Christ. Perhaps some of their old friends and their fellow countrymen have said to them, you know, you can have everything you want in this new faith if you just come back to your old religion. And you don't have to then be a traitor to your heritage. And the pastor is preaching to them in this sermon, don't go back. Don't turn your back on Jesus because he's your only hope. And they're wavering in their commitment to Christ and to Christianity and to the church. Well, we don't know who this preacher is. We don't know who the author is. Most say Paul, some say Luke, a few say Apollos or Priscilla. God only knows. And we don't know where the congregation was that he was writing to. And we don't know where he was that he was writing from. And you know what? All of that is well and good. Because it leaves the focus on his message. And that's where the focus needs to be. 
And the message over and over again is simply Jesus. Over and over and over, the author focuses our hearts on Jesus and stresses his sufficiency and superiority for the Christian faith. And Hebrews is going to say that to us in 50 different ways, over and over again, to drive that point home, to drive it deep into our hearts and souls. Now, maybe you're entering this new year flagging in your faith. Maybe you're finding it hard to pray. Maybe reading the Bible has become few and far between for you. Maybe you feel that your religion and your faith and your worship are coming up short. Maybe you're disappointed or disillusioned. Maybe you're even desperate. So much so that you're beginning to look somewhere else for the answers. Beginning to look somewhere else for the satisfaction that has escaped you or the hope that eludes you or the purpose that drives you. Well, if you're there in that place, Hebrews is waiting for you. And the author is saying that Jesus is better than whatever else you're looking for. Jesus is better. He's a better Savior. He's a better priest. He's a better sacrifice for a better covenant and a better way of life. So if you're lacking and empty, it's not because Jesus isn't what you need. It's because you don't have enough of him. And that's one reason, <coughs> excuse me, one reason why this word better keeps coming up in Hebrews. Because we're so tempted to think there's something else out there, somewhere, that's better. The author is saying to us, no, Jesus is better. And there's nothing out there better than Jesus. Jesus is better than anything else. And if you don't see that, you can't see that. You don't know him well enough. I want you to see this theme throughout the book of Hebrews. So keep your Bibles open. Actually, it would be easier if you have the insert to follow along, because very quickly I'm going to show you a number of verses in Hebrews that sort of make this point. Look first at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Here the author says that though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So here he speaks of a better salvation. And then look at Hebrews 7, verse 19. There he speaks of a better hope, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We've got a better salvation and a better hope in Jesus. A few verses down, Hebrews 7, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So we not only have a better salvation and a better hope, we have a better covenant in Jesus. Go to chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So we not only have a better covenant, we have better promises. By the way, this verse reminds us that the theme of better will not only be shown in your English Bibles by looking for the word better, but also looking at words like superior and greater and phrases like more excellent. That theme's going to be carried out throughout the book. Let's jump to chapter 9, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And so with Jesus, we have better sacrifices. Chapter 10, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So the gospel that Jesus brings gives you a better and abiding possession or inheritance. Now we know these people in the book of Hebrews that they're talking about had desires, these pilgrims of faith in the days of the old covenant. But what did they desire? Chapter 11 tells us, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so in Christ, we have access to that better country, that heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. We also will learn that these people persevered. They put up with a lot. They endured. They were tortured. They refused to accept release. Again, chapter 11, verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so they might rise again to a better life. Then down in verse 30, since God had provided something better for us, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And finally, in Hebrews 12, we see that Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That theme of better is found throughout the book of Hebrews. The words better, greater, superior, more excellent are used more than 25 times in the book of Hebrews. And this morning, I want you to feel that theme of Jesus is better way down deep in your bones. And I want to do that by looking directly at this description of Jesus found here in Hebrews 1. So we'll start at the beginning, verse 1. We encounter what is perhaps the single most important statement that could be made in our time. The single most important statement that could be made in our time. God has spoken. Verse 1 says, Long ago, as many great stories start, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. I contend that this is one of the most important things people need to know today. Ours is an age of relativism. Many Americans, far too many Christians, insist there are no absolutes, whether in matters of truth or morality. Secular society has largely removed God from the public arena. There's no longer a heavenly voice to speak with clarity and authority. And the price we've paid is the loss of truth, and with the loss of truth, we've lost hope. And it even when it comes to those things that we think we know, society says we should consider them mere constructs of thought amidst the constant flux of uncertain knowledge. And what they're saying is, you don't really know anything for sure. And they say that's especially true when it comes to God and when it comes to the knowledge of God. Can we know our Creator if there is one? Is there really a Savior to help us? Unless God has spoken, we can't even be sure He's there. Unless God's there, there's no ultimate hope for us as individuals and no answer for the ultimate problem of death. 
Francis Schaeffer, in his brilliant book, answers this question. I don't actually commend it because it's really, really hard reading. But the book is entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. It's a great declaration. We know even in the book of Job, Job asks in chapter 11, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? And he answers with a resounding no. By definition, God is beyond the realm of our senses from which all our knowledge has to come. Therefore, if God is there and he wants us to know him, if he has an answer or a plan or an offer of salvation, it has to be communicated to us. He's going to have to speak to us, and he's going to have to speak in a way that we understand. Therefore, there's nothing more important, nothing more essential than what Hebrews says right here at the beginning, God has spoken. This is the uniform testimony of the Bible about itself, that it is God's very word. The Bible's books were written by human authors who spoke and wrote in human language. But the Bible insists that through them, God himself spoke and speaks to us still. The Apostle Peter explains this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what we refer to as the inspiration of Scripture. God has communicated to us through the Holy Spirit's leading of its human authors. And the point is not that these books contain the inspired insights of men. It's exactly the opposite. It's God's Word as from His very mouth, given through the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of these human servants. This is what Paul uh, emphasizes in 2 Timothy. He says, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The divine authorship of Holy Scripture needs to be emphasized even more today because so much of contemporary scholarship focuses on the human authors. And it's okay to realize these sort of human boundaries or contours that God has used to give a different shape to different books of the Bible. I mean, Moses had his own experience and calling and personality and gifts, and God used them to craft the particular message in the books that Moses wrote. Same is true of Paul and Luke and John, all the other biblical writers. But while the Bible affirms this, its own emphasis is on divine authorship. Hebrews 1, verse 1, says that God spoke. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in all of this, it's still God who spoke. It's not Moses who spoke in Genesis, and it's not David who spoke in the Psalms, and it's not Paul who spoke in Romans. God spoke in the Bible, and we must regard all Scripture as his holy word. Now the book of Hebrews upholds the Bible's own view on the process of revelation. Whenever the writer cites scripture, and he cites scripture a lot in this book, 
often from the Psalms. But the human author never gets the credit, always the divine author. In chapter 2, we'll see he cites Psalm 22, and he ascribes it to Christ speaking in the Old Testament. In chapter 3, he cites Psalm 95, and he prefaces it not by saying, as David said, but he says, as the Holy Spirit says. And so it goes throughout the book of Hebrews. The point is not to deny the significance of the Bible's human authors, but to show that our emphasis, following the Bible's emphasis, must always be on God speaking in his word. And this has several important implications. First, if God speaks in the Bible, then the Bible carries divine authority. There's lots of people today that are willing to say, well, God spoke, but I don't have to do it. Today, people want to set aside the Bible's teachings when it clashes with whatever the current cultural standards are. And just as God commands our obedience, he demands that we come in humility and obey his word. There's nothing so important for Christians to recover today as the respect that Scripture deserves as God's revelation, God's speaking to us. Second, if God wrote the Bible, it is enduringly and totally relevant. We don't make the Bible relevant. It is relevant. After all, God doesn't change. By nature, he can't. And his word doesn't change either. And it's true that some things in the Bible were said to particular individuals. God told Moses, go down to Egypt, not us. But the teaching given all through the Bible on God's character, on sin, the good news of salvation, how it comes to us, abides forever for the simple reason that God abides forever. And the writer of Hebrews says the Christian standards of conduct remain the same because we read in Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So God not only spoke in the Bible to those who first received it, but he speaks as well to those of us who read it today. Again, emphasized repeatedly, in Hebrews. In Hebrews 3, uh, as I have mentioned, the writer cites Psalm 95, written a thousand years before. But he writes, as the Holy Spirit says. And he uses the present tense. It's not merely what the Holy Spirit said back when David wrote it, but what the Holy Spirit says now as God speaks to those who read it now. This is why the Bible is fully relevant to our needs today. And third, since he's spoken in the Bible, and though he did so with great diversity at many times and in many ways, we also hold to the unity of the Bible. The Bible consists of 66 books written over 1,300 years by 40 different people. And yet it is one book with one unified message. The late PCA pastor James Montgomery Boyce explains these people were not alike. Some were kings, others were statesmen, priests, prophets, a tax collector, a physician, a tent maker, a fisherman. Yet together they produced a volume that is a marvelous unity in its doctrine, historical viewpoints, ethics, and expectations. <coughs> it is, in short, a single story of divine redemption begun in Israel, centered in Jesus, culminating at the end of history, and behind, behind the efforts of the more than 40 human authors is one perfect, sovereign, and guiding mind of God. 
So this gives us the most important uh, interpretive principle for reading the Bible, and that's that Scripture is best interpreted by Scripture. Since the Bible is one message spoken by God, we should understand the teaching in one passage in light of how that same teaching is given elsewhere in Scripture. It means the clear teaching God gives in one place limits our interpretation of the same subject elsewhere in the Bible. And that's important to know for the study of Hebrews because the author not only finds numerous Old Testament passages to still be relevant, but under the Holy Spirit's control gives us an authoritative guide to how we should understand them. Now, again, think about how hard it is, how remarkable it was for that first generation of Christians to put their faith in Jesus. And it's especially true of the Jews who had not personally known Jesus, but converted to Christianity. You can imagine the kind of arguments that unbelieving Jews would have employed to dissuade them from their new faith. They would have pointed out that Jesus is just a man, the son of a poor carpenter from a backwater village in Galilee. They would have pointed out it was a time of great unrest. This man, Jesus, was just one of many zealous leaders of his day. Worst of all, they would have said his failure is proved by his humiliating death on the cross. Jesus may have been a decent enough guy, but obviously he got carried away with his short-lived fame. And the real problem is all his fanatical disciples who made these outlandish claims about his resurrection and started this heretical religion that actually worshipped the poor guy. And this is the kind of argument that Jewish Christians are subjected to. And it sounds, may sound funny to us, but it was a powerful argument then. Especially since believing in Jesus came at such a high cost. They were excluded from Jewish society, and there was even violent persecution in the days to come. And many would sit down and reconsider their religious options. And the epistle to the Hebrews was written precisely because of this kind of pressure. That is now, faith in Jesus comes at a price. You can't be a Christian without suffering at the hands of the world. And therefore, it had to be worth it to believe in Jesus. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants to impress upon his readers then and now. In this book's opening lines, he directs us to the supremacy of Christ. He knows if we see the awesome wonder of Jesus in his person and work as God's Son and our Savior, then instead of doubting or trembling with fear, we'll respond with words like the man in Mark chapter 9 who asked Jesus to heal his son. He said to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I think it's one of the great prayers of the Bible. Be a great prayer for us for this new year. To make this point very clearly, the next two verses, verses 2 and 3, contain seven statements of Christ's supremacy. And that number is deliberate. Because the next set of verses, which we're going to look at next week, lists seven Old Testament citations ascribed to Christ. 
Seven is the number for perfection or completion in the Bible, and that's the writer's point, the perfect supremacy of Christ. So these seven statements are organized along the lines of the three great Old Testament offices, uh, perfected and completed in Christ, the offices of prophet, priest, and king, which I prayed about earlier. That's a helpful way uh, for us to think about Jesus. He is our prophet and that he perfectly reveals God to us. He is our priest in offering himself for our sins and cleansing us and interceding for us. And he is our king, reigning now in heaven and ruling over us as our sovereign Lord. We're going to look at these three very quickly. Verse 2, we see the son is the true king. So with the last of these, Christ is king, the writer of Hebrews begins this sevenfold exclamation of the supremacy of Christ. Verse 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So we have two, first two of these seven statements. We see Jesus as Lord both in his person and in his work. First, he's appointed the heir of all things. That's something that follows from being uh, God's only son. In Israel, firstborn son had the right of inheritance. This means as the heir, all things already belong to the son in principle, just as they will actually and finally be at the end. It's God the Father's appointment that his son should be blessed and glorified in receiving all things. He also goes on to say, through whom he also created the world. Jesus Christ, God's son, is Lord and King, because of his divine role in creation. Not only is the world made for him, but it was made by him. could hardly be a stronger claim for kingship than this. If you are the one for whom something uh, was made, and you are also the one who made it, then you are its rightful Lord. And so it is with Jesus. The Apostle Paul says much the same thing in Colossians 1, which we saw in our responsive reading this morning. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Those Jewish Christians who first received this letter were tempted to renounce Christianity. But Jesus comes and fulfills and gathers to himself all that the office of king ever meant in Israel. He is the true king, the Lord of all. The faithful of Israel are those who worship him and serve him. We need to embrace that same truth. Jesus is king over all his people. He's the king and head of the church, no less so when the Israelites of David's day looked to his authority and obeyed his commands. Jesus was appointed heir of all things which were made through him and are even now sustained by him. And this is only seen by God's word with the eyes of faith. Jesus is enthroned, not on an earthly throne, but as we see at the right hand of the majesty on high. Believing in Christ as our king, we obey him by faith, and we have to take comfort in the middle of the trials and tribulations to come in the knowledge that one day he will come to finally and fully establish his kingdom over all creation, destroying his enemies with the rod of his might, Psalm 2, and inviting his faithful servants to enter into the joy of his kingdom, Matthew 25. The son is not only the true king, 
we see next that the son is the perfect prophet. The son is the perfect prophet. This passage exalts Christ as Lord of all, but also as the one who perfectly reveals God in all his glory. He is the true king, but also the perfect, pre, uh, perfect prophet. Verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Without the Son, we remain in the dark regarding the glory of God. But with the Son, we have a perfect revelation of God. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 4, that we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see God in Christ through the Bible's teaching on his person and work, of his holy zeal and his compassionate love, his heavenly words, his mighty saving works. As the Son, Jesus is a better revelation than anything that came from the prophets. Think about that. It's one thing to know the servant. You can learn a lot about the master uh, by what you see in those who work for him. David Martin Lloyd-Jones said, A servant may be able to say everything that is right about his master. He may know him well and intimately, but he can never represent him in the way that the Son can. The Son is a manifestation of the Father. Thus our Lord himself, while here on earth, manifested the name of God in a way that is greater than all others because he is the Son of God. Jesus is the perfect prophet, the one who fully reveals God's glory. It's not just because he's similar to God the Father, not just because he looks like God the Father, but he is the exact imprint of his nature. The Greek word here is character, which gives us the English word character. It refers to the stamp or the imprint made by a die or a seal. A good example is a, a coin with an imprint of a ruler's face. In the same way, Jesus bears God's image or imprint. Again, Paul says in Colossians 1, as we earlier read, he is the image of the invisible God. And the point is the trustworthiness with which Jesus reveals God to us. There's this exact correspondence between what we see in Jesus and what is true of God. And as Jesus himself explains in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Furthermore, verse 3 explains that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He wields divine power because as God's son, he's fully God. He's the perfect prophet. He's not merely able to reveal God's will, but he's able to establish God's will on the earth. This description of Jesus as this great and final prophet helps us gain a better understanding of the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. The reason the Hebrew Christians shouldn't go back to Judaism is not that the Old Testament was wrong. Through the prophets, God left his people with a revelation for their salvation. But the chief message of the Old Testament prophets was about a Savior yet to come, the perfect prophet who would not only point to salvation but would accomplish it. So the way to be a true follower of the prophets was and is to believe the message that they said, to receive in faith the one for whom they prayed, the one who is the head of their order, the fulfillment of their longing for a Savior. 
We need to worship Jesus, God's Son, as the King who is Lord of all, and we need to listen to him as the true and final prophet who perfectly reveals God's glory. And there's a third office that Jesus perfects and completes. And there we see that the Son is the great high priest. The Son is the great high priest. You know, apart from his ministry in the office of priest, we could bow to God and we could listen to God, but we would never be accepted by God. We would never be able to draw near to his presence. Because the writer of Hebrews tells us Jesus is the great high priest who makes atonement for our sins. He writes, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The theme of Jesus' priestly office will occupy much of the book of Hebrews. And it's a message we have to understand in order to be saved. Jesus fulfills the priestly office because he offers up this one true sacrifice to take away our sin. That's what the angel said right before Christmas, right? When he came to Joseph... It said in Matthew 1, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As Jesus rules us by his Spirit, he speaks to us as prophet through the gospel, but these are possible only because as the perfect Lamb of God, he laid down his life for our sins, making atonement for us on the cross. And then as the great high priest, he went to heaven to present his own blood to God to secure our full, perfect, and final forgiveness. So we have this sevenfold exclamation of praise, the supremacy of Jesus as God's Son. And it ends with, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You think about this. There's no seats in the temple at Jerusalem. The priests offered sacrifices for the purification of the people day and night without ceasing because the problem of sin couldn't be solved. They never sat down. <coughs> but when God's son, the great high priest, whom the old covenant priest merely represented, shed his own blood for us, his atoning sacrifice the one to which all other sacrifices pointed, he sat down. Because there's no more sacrifice to be made. God's Son having offered his precious blood once and for all. And that being the case, the readers of Hebrews want the benefits of the Old Testament sacrifices. They can't turn away from Christ. They have to hold fast to his death for their salvation. The king who rules on the throne of heaven is the priest who sacrificed himself for our salvation and whose presence at the right hand of God the Father as our prophet bears everlasting testimony to our forgiveness. So now that we know all that, what difference does it make? How should it affect our lives? Well, we still have one verse left to go. Verse 4, where we see the sun is better. The sun is better. Verse 4 completes what in the Greek is a single sentence that runs from the beginning of verse 1 to verse 4. It says, Having become as much superior to angels 
as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Seems like an odd ending. And there's two explanations. Uh, the first is that Jewish spirituality in that day had this excessively high view of angels. But the fact that God employed uh, angels doesn't mean that we should exalt them, as many Jews seem to have been doing. The angels, like the prophets, were just servants of the Old Covenant. But Jesus Christ is the Son who fulfills the Old Covenant. He's the Christ, the Messiah, means the Anointed One. He fulfills these three anointed offices of prophet, priest, and king. And therefore, the only way to fulfill all the Old Testament taught, the only way to realize all that those uh, patriarchs and the fathers of Israel had looked to with hope, is to trust in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Upon the throne of heaven, he's exalted even above the angels. And his name, his title, his position is more excellent than theirs. Now, there's another possible reason why the writer brings in angels, one that resonates much more, I think, with us today. And that's that people are fascinated by angels. Books about angels are bestsellers. People adorn themselves with angelic jewelry. And I think the reason is, deep down, uh, probably not even at a conscious level, people know they need something spiritual. They need some sort of mediator with God. They need someone to open a doorway to heaven, to the blessing of God. They need supernatural help for their problems, which to them seem insurmountable. And so people in the first century church, just like today, find angels a very appealing and very non-demanding form of hope and comfort. The fact that we don't actually know very much about angels makes them even more attractive because we can fill in the details any way we want. And what this passage is telling us is that Jesus is a cause for much greater hope, much greater comfort than we can ever gain by trying to follow angels. When the Bible presents God's Son as the true prophet, priest, and king, he's showing us that Jesus is and does all that our souls could ever need. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-expected anointed one who enters into the God-given offices of the Old Testament so that he can save us to the uttermost. The great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge expressed this well, explaining how Jesus fulfills all of our needs. He writes, We as fallen men, ignorant, guilty, polluted, and helpless, need a Savior who's a prophet to instruct us, a priest to atone and make intercession for us, and a king to rule over and protect us. And the salvation that we receive at his hands includes all that a prophet, priest, and king, in the highest sense, of those terms can do. We're enlightened in the knowledge of the truth. We're reconciled to God by the sacrificial death of his son, and we're delivered from the power of Satan and brought into the kingdom of God, all of which supposes that our Redeemer is to us at once prophet, priest, and king, that Jesus is the perfect and all-sufficient answer from God. He is our true king. We need to be ruled and governed, protected, and led let us therefore bow before him, crown him as we just sang, crown him Lord of all, flying his banner at the gates of our hearts, forsaking all other kingdoms and rulers. He is our perfect prophet, 
We need truth. He is the truth. He speaks the truth. Let us come to his word, seeking the truth, forsaking all the false prophets that would lead us astray. And he's our great high priest. Come to him for forgiveness of sins, for his prayer on your behalf, and for full reconciliation with God the Father. We need to confess our great need for Jesus. Let us take hold of the cross, forsaking all claims to any righteousness of our own. There was an old German theologian named Karl Barth, and uh, he was a neo-Orthodox theologian, which means he wasn't quite, he wouldn't get into the PCA. Um, And yet, Karl Barth was a better preacher than most of the Orthodox guys. And one day he's lecturing to a group of students at Princeton Theological Seminary. And uh, having done a little lecturing at seminaries, usually you have one guy who thinks he's really, really smart. And he doesn't care if he's smarter than the other students, he just wants you to know he's smarter than you. And he's probably right. One of these students raised his hand, said, Sir, don't you think that God has revealed himself in other religions and not only in Christianity? Carl Bart put his stuff down, kind of came around the podium, stood in front of the class. His answer stunned the crowd. With a modest thunder, he answered, No, God has not revealed himself in any religion, including Christianity. He has revealed himself in his Son. That's the appeal of the author of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Come to him, listen to him, rest in him, trust in him, enjoy him, put your hope in him. God has spoken by his son. And that's life in six words. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you that you have given him to us as our true King and our perfect prophet and our great high priest. Drive these truths deep into our hearts and make our hearts believe. No matter what is going on in our lives, make our hearts believe that Jesus is better. Amen. Amen.